Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. My name is Melissa, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Melissa. And I'm just so happy to be back at this meeting and um, just... uh, just so grateful to this meeting for being my home away from home when I was living in the East Bay for about four months. I've moved back to San Francisco, but I'm just really happy to be back here and seeing all of you again. Um, so my job today is to speak about Tradition 2, which is why I happen to have it easily accessible to me to read a minute ago. And um, I've never done a share where I also talk on a tradition. And I think it's so easy to get bogged down in the what, it's li- what it was like part of a story that I kind of want to start with the tradition part. And then after I finish that, I'll go back and do the more traditional what happened, what, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So tradition two is for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God or higher power, as it may express itself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Um, so... Uh, Sometimes people, I'll just keep it to myself. Initially, I used to dislike it when a meeting would cycle through its week of the month when it covered a tradition, because I would feel like, oh, I'm here to recover for myself. I don't care how the meetings run themselves. But I've really, over time, come to deeply appreciate the traditions. And, And the way I learned to appreciate them was by initially when I when I didn't care how they applied to the group, I um, would translate them into how do they apply to not the OA group but my family group. And so when I reread this, and so I'm going to just kind of walk through this tradition the way I um, walk, when, the way I go through traditions when I'm trying to bring them closer to me. And so when I reread it as for my family's purpose. There is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as it may express itself in our group conscience. Um, Our leaders, let us, shall we say, the mother, (laughs) me, the mother, I'm but a trusted servant. I do not govern. And that's, that actually really hits me pretty hard because, you know, yeah, when my children were very little, I did govern, you know, at least the kids. (laughs) But um, especially now that my kids are 12 and 15, and then also in relationship with my spouse, I can't be the leader. I can't govern and have our family function well. Um, and in fact, for me to try to govern would be to have the family operating in very similar to the way my family of origin operated, which kind of ended up with me having an eating disorder. So, you know, it's very important to me that um, I think of myself as someone who's of service in my family. And when my family is trying to make a decision, it's not that it's a democracy in the family, because these are two children after all and two adults, but I at least need to give the kids a fair hearing. I certainly need to give my spouse a fair hearing and not be trying to control and direct and force the family as a group to do what I want them to do. And, And things go so much better when I handle my family that way. And so, you know, there's the OA group, there's my family group, and, but then there's also me. And so when I take the tradition and just apply it to me, and when I say, <laughs> for Melissa's purpose of recovery or for, for my purpose of staying abstinent, um, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving higher power, as it may express itself in 
my conscience, my consciousness. My mind is but a trusted servant. It does not govern. Um, and when I say it that way, it's it makes me realize, wait a minute, what was when was the last time I asked my higher power for direction versus just doing what I wanted to do? You know, when was the last time I was serving my meal and actually asked my higher power, my higher power, how much is enough versus doing some kind of calculation about how much can I get away with, which is what my mind would tend to do. Um, And actually, when I say it that way, it sounds kind of mean to me and I don't want to be mean to myself, but think of it more as because the whole point is that it's a loving higher power and um, uh, five minutes. Thank you. Um, And one of the things um, a, a, re, a sponsor that I had about 10 years ago, one of the things she used to say to me that was very powerful was, Melissa, I don't think your higher power talks to you in a hateful tone of voice. I don't think your higher power talks to you in an abusive tone of voice. So if you're hearing something hateful or abusive, I think that's your disease talking. And, uh, you know, what kind of voice do you think your higher power talks to you in? And, and you know, this tradition says that it's a loving higher power as it may express itself in our group conscience or in my consciousness. And um, anyway, so I have, so yet again, just even walking through this tradition, substituting out those words, uh, brings it really home to me that, that this tradition in a way is at the group level, like working step three. It's like turning my will and my life over to the care of my higher power. And when the group needs to make a decision, it should turn its will and its life over to the care of a higher power. And and so then I'll just say a few things that popped out to me from reading. Re, you know, I've read this, the traditions before, but with all of the program literature, whether it's OA literature or AA literature, I find that no matter how many times I've read it, when I read, read it, it's like they stuck more stuff in that I didn't remember. And um, so there were really, I think, uh, four key points that I pulled out of this chapter that I just wanted to highlight because they were kind of big reminders for me. One is that it says the group conscience, so a shorthand for the group conscience is whatever decision the group came to by its vote at the end of a discussion. The group conscience is not the same thing as majority rule. Um, It says in order to reach an informed group conscience, we affirm each group member's right to take part in the discussions, and we listen to everyone attentively with open minds. The purpose of our discussions is to make sure the decision reached by the group takes into account all pertinent information. If we are to reach an informed decision, the group needs to take into account everyone's ideas. For this reason, OA groups give all viewpoints a full hearing, even minority viewpoints. And it even goes on to say that we don't set abstinence requirements on who can speak at the group conscience and who can vote in the group conscience vote. And um, and that and again, that's powerful for me when I think about even my family interactions, like how often, particularly with my, my daughter who's 15, I can assume I know what's going on in her mind and just kind of shut her down before she has a chance to really say what's on her mind. And um, anyway, so that was a good one for me. And then the other thing that it, the point that it makes is that those of us who have been long timers are responsible to speak up if we have an experience of how groups have voted in the past and how it went down, or if we have experience about what the traditions, other traditions say. And it says, Sometimes experienced members may hesitate to speak up for fear of being unpopular, but this information needs to be made known to all of us if we are to act wisely 
under the authority of a loving higher power. Um, And then a third point is that we make mistakes, and it's actually okay. Not all our group decisions will be wise and practical. We do make mistakes sometimes and have to look for better answers to a problem. Another group conscience vote can be taken when something needs to be corrected. And then I love this line. Like individuals, OA groups learn from their mistakes, and so does OA as a whole. We find that our higher power often leads us through our blunders. That that means an awful lot to me because I feel like um, if I ever do get to my story part of this share, I'll talk about that I've had experience with relapse. And even now, when I feel like I have very, very long-term abstinence, it's a very, you know, my adherence to a very specific food plan is imperfect. And yet I feel like every single time I have a slip, if I can learn something from it, then, you know, it it wasn't wasted time, you know, Uh, uh, and I feel like my higher power often can teach me through my mistakes. And then a fourth point was how important it is that we rotate service positions. Um, The council of longtime members continues to be valuable, but it is not good for the group or its leaders if one person holds a particular service position too long. A vital part of our personal growth in OA is giving service, but it is also vital to practice humility by giving up our service office after a specified length of time so someone else can have this opportunity to carry the OA message. Thus, service positions are rotated regularly. Anyway, I got an awful lot out of this chapter, and uh, I'm really grateful that I ended up with this assignment to talk about tradition too, because I certainly thought a lot more about this tradition than I normally would. So... I'll set that aside now and do more of the traditional what happened to me, what uh, what it was like for me, what happened to me, and what it's like now. So um, I feel that I was born a normal kid in regards to food. I was a normal weight. I was a normal eater. I didn't actually think much about food. But I grew up in a family where my parents were both adult children of alcoholics, and my dad had rage issues, and my mom was codependent. And... Um, event and, and then they were both got pretty hardcore into their uh, into a, a religion and in that religion it was certainly encouraged that you know spare the rod spoil the child you know pulling verses out of the religious text to show that it's you know okay to punish children so I got a lot of punishment and um, and I worked hard at being perfect and but it never worked you know I still got punished whether it was a lot of yelling or spankings. And the upshot was, by the time I was about nine years old, I um, I started really honing self-criticism to just like a scalpel. Um, because my goal was, if I could criticize myself well enough and make myself perfect enough, maybe I would avoid getting yelled at. Maybe I would avoid getting startled by finding out I, was out I had done something wrong again. And... Um, And I really feel like it was like this voodoo that I did with myself because I had nowhere to put the rage that I experienced from all that punishment. So I turned it in on myself. And um, so I developed self-hatred first. Then when I hit abstinence, even though, uh, I'm sorry, not abstinence, (laughs) adolescence. (laughs) When I hit adolescence, hit puberty, And at that point, I totally had a normal body, but my body started developing normal curves. I started getting a lot of messages that um, I was getting fat. And 
And so then that self-hatred very naturally turned into body hatred. And, and soon after that, I went on my first diet. And in my experience, it took one diet to break my um, natural ability to eat when I was hungry and stop when I was full because I was never the same. I never actually had another successful diet. And, and it was after that one diet that, that I began this pattern of eating as little as possible all through the day. And then I would come home from school with you know, my brother and the adults were gone and um, eat as much as possible between the hours of four and dinner time when my parents came home, eat very little at dinner. And then as soon as everyone was in bed, eat, neat, 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 neat until I fell asleep or failed to fall asleep. But, you know, and then get up early in the morning and just start the whole cycle over again, eating as little as possible all day and eating late into the night. And um, so that... Uh, you know, I, I kept putting on weight all through high school. And so finally the summer before my um, senior year in high school, I remember, you know, lying in bed and beginning to fantasize about ways I could kill myself. And, you know, kind of walking my ways through all the methods and then realizing, well, if I use my dad's guns, we lived in Texas, so there were guns in the house. If I use my dad's guns, he'll never forgive myself, if himself. If I do, you know, if I do these different methods, what was the problem with each method? So I never, um, well, anyway, I ended up telling my parents, look, I'm going to kill myself if I can't figure out this food thing. And so um, luckily, my, my parents got me into therapy, and it was an awful therapist, but the one thing she did was suggested that I go to OA. So the summer after, well, I think it was like the week after I graduated high school, I got myself to an OA meeting, looked it up in the phone book, drove the car to the meeting, and I walked in, and there were two people in the meeting, and it was 1986, so there was no OA literature. They were reading Step 11 out of the AA 12 and 12. So step 11 for the newcomer is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. And the context for, and I knew immediately that God had brought me to this room because, so I had continued in my parents' religion and even when they became backsliding Baptists, I was like going to church even more and I had read the Bible multiple times and, you know, I was seeking a solution in God, but I was still going through that pattern of starving all day and binging all night and gaining weight and hating myself. So when I walk into this group and they're reading literature that's talking about God, I just knew God had brought me here. And, um, and I basically did, um, everything that I was told to do, you know, I just sunk in, it says in the AA 12 and 12, we, we grabbed onto the program, like a drowning man sees as a life preserver. And that's really how I grabbed onto the program. And, when I heard this literature describing alcoholics on Skid Row and describing how they drank, even though I was, you know, 18 years old, totally a good girl, um, I just deeply related. Like I got it. I am the same as these men, and um, so I, I, um, I was, ch- you know, I was 18. I had no kids. I went off to college. And at that time, I, the way I worked the program was I did everything as much as possible. I went to meetings almost every day. I did gobs of service. I worked the steps. I did everything. And the program worked for me. Um, and then at some point, I relapsed. And in, in relapse, gained, I don't know, 60 or 70 pounds. My top weight was around 209. That's when I stopped weighing myself. And 
and it was super painful. I couldn't stop it. Here I am going to program, but I'm back to doing the old thing of eating as little as I can during the day and binging all through the night and, you know, ballooning up to 2.09. And, um, but at some point, still going to meetings, I was starting to get the message that I have to accept my body the way it is. I have to learn to love myself. And so um, I found, uh, it was kind of a new thing at that time, a, a large size store. And I, I bought, my t- bought myself two really cute tent dresses. And I started wearing, you know, alternating between the two dresses, wearing them out to work and school. And then I remember one morning after a binge, in this getting myself dressed and blow drying my hair and putting on my makeup, all those things I don't do anymore. Um, (laughs) And um, stepping outside into the morning light to go to work. I feel kind of awful from having binge, but I've got my cute little tent dress on. And and I feel like um, this was the voice of higher power that just, as I stepped out into the light, I heard this voice saying, kind of me, but kind of not me, saying, Melissa, no matter how big you get, I'm going to clothe you. And that was the turning point for me, that no matter how big I get, I'm going to love myself. I am not going to hate myself. And I'm going to keep coming back to meetings until it works. And I'm, I'm going to be I'm, I'm going to be OK, even if the binging doesn't stop, because that is the core of my recovery. And um, so uh, it did work for me. And I, I, it's so long ago in the mists of time, I can no longer remember exactly like how fast that started working and how soon I got my abstinence back. But uh, I did gradually lose all that weight and abstinence and reach a normal body size, moved to California. And then eventually at some point, um, I became unhappy with OA and I left for about 10 years. And then after my second child was born, he's, he's now 12, um, I I found myself over the past couple of years Googling OA over and over again, you know, when I'd have a bad night with food or whatever. And so I finally came back when my 12-year-old was about one. And and I came back to an anorexic bulimic compulsive overeater meeting in San Francisco where they had five minutes of writing and uh, of meditation and 20 minutes of writing. And I'd never been to a meeting like that. And it was like, I don't know whether OA evolved in the 10 years I was gone or whether I changed, but... I just feel like OA has been so right for me. It was right for me before. I don't know why I left for a while, but now that I'm back, I just feel so much like I'm home. And I want to quickly say a few things. One is I, at one point, was convinced when I came back that the program wouldn't work this time because this time I'm not a college, I'm not 18 years old, I'm not unmarried, I'm not child-free, you know. I'm married, I'm, what, 40-whatever, and I've got two kids, and I work, and, you know, I can't go to a meeting every day. I can go to one meeting a week, and um, I was doing the step step writing on step one in the new OA workbook, and I was writing about that and saying, oh, my God, the program won't, won't work. And then that, I heard the voice of God, I think, again, or me, or I, whatever. I don't know what it is. And it said, Melissa, yeah, your program action is important, but this is not about you getting over this yourself by going to a meeting every single day and doing every single thing right. It's about doing enough action that a higher power can restore you to sanity. And I almost fell out of my chair. And... Um, and what I can say is a higher power has restored me to sanity. And, you know, my abstinence is still imperfect. But on the other hand, it may be that it's the perfect abstinence for me. So my definition of abstinence is freedom from, in the order in which I developed them, freedom from self-hatred, dieting, binging, and purging. I didn't even mention purging because I think I only successfully threw up twice. 
but I was always trying to get rid of whatever it was I had binged on the night before by starving the next day, walking in the cold without a jacket, or whatever the crazy thing was I was trying to do. And so thank you very much. So when I have a slip today, the way I stay in abstinence, even though I overate at that particular meal according to what my food plan was, is I like crazy practice the other aspects of my abstinence. So I really practice. I do not beat myself up no matter what. I welcome this food in. Whatever it was I ate that was too much for my body last night. You know, I practice the next day non-dieting by I do not engage in thinking about how to change my food plan today. The day after a slip is not the day to think about that. And I do not do excessive exercise the day after I overeat. I just really try to accept it into my body. So thank you all for listening to me and giving me this opportunity to give back to this program that's really saved my life. Thank you. Thank you.